fun uh, coming into the, the fall here. But, um, but I'm excited, and I'm excited that uh, we can get into the, the topic that we're uh, continuing on in here. We've been going through this series, um, Good News for Everybody, um, and I've really been... Um, it's, it's funny, I've been surprised through it, uh, even though I'm, you know, sort of directing this and, and, and choosing uh, the, this topic. And, and honestly, um, I thought of this before we started, kind of like taking medicine. You know, like when kids take medicine, I'm not sure, if, probably a lot of us have done that recently, right? Made a, made a child take medicine, right? And you're just like, look, this is something that you need to be done. I, I felt convicted. I felt like as I prayed, like this was, a, was an important topic for us to talk about sex, sexuality, um, you know, all, all the things that come along with that. I, I felt like this was really important for us to cover, but I wasn't particularly excited about it because then, because I have to be the guy who comes up here and talks about this stuff. And sometimes I make, we make Ryan do it. So thanks Ryan, for, for being willing to, to uh, participate in this, this fun topic. Um, but I didn't think I was going to enjoy this experience. You know, it's like taking medicine. But I, I've noticed this, and I've been surprised by this, that people are actually very happy to talk about this stuff. They're, they're relieved to actually dig into these topics. People who don't follow Jesus are actually really happy to at least listen and, and think through uh, at least a thoughtful expression of what the Bible teaches about sex. Even if they don't agree with it, they're willing to engage on it. I was genuinely surprised by that. Because I, as, as we think about this issue, I think the way it's become so culturally sensitive, sexuality, gender, um, you know, marriage, not marriage, singleness, all these things have, have become so charged that we just assume people aren't, aren't, in, aren't wanting to engage. I have found that I was wrong in that assumption. So I would encourage you to think about that. What are the things that we are just like avoiding, the topics that we're avoiding, that God presents to us as opportunities to flourish and to, to live a good life, a holy life, a blessed life, but that we think of, ooh, I don't want to talk to people about that stuff. I think there's lots of things like that. And so I wanted you to just, just, just point that out. Um, I was particularly surprised as, 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 as we came in here, and I'm, I'm trying to, you know, talk a lot about the different aspects of, of, of the idea of Christian sexuality and, and the Christian sexual ethic, and I've been relieved to find that, it, that the Christian sexual ethic is not about control, which is kind of the way it's painted in its negative light. It's like, oh, well, God is just super controlling about sex. Like, he's got a lot of opinions about it. Like, oh, boy, what a, God is so heavy or he's a prude. But it's not about that. Rather, what the Christian sexual ethic is about the fact that there is an internal logic to people. Because people are created. We're created people and we're created with certain desires and, 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 our, and, our, and our lives function in a certain way according to our design. That's what the Christian sexual ethic is. It's just implied in it. So it's not about, well, God just wants it this way. It's that you want it this way, whether you know it or not. Actually, you cry out for a, a, a um, biblically sound sexuality. Paul explains that idea in 1 Corinthians 6, 13. He says this. He's talking about sexuality. He says, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. It's an analogy, right? And then he compares it to the, the body and sex. He says, however, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. There's a very direct comparison being drawn there, that, that, uh, uh, talking about the rationale. See, the rationale of sexuality is rooted in the facts of who we are, what we were created to be, what all of us are like, whether we believe it or not. The Bible is making a claim about you ontologically. 
what you are, what you're like, what your being is actually like. The stomach, the analogy is, is this way, that the stomach is perfectly designed to be um, in a productive and life-sustaining relationship with food. It does that well. That's what it was created to do, to take food, to digest it, and turn it into energy which sustains life, without which life ceases to exist. So too, to extend this analogy, your body is designed to be in a life-giving relationship with God. And what you do with your body has implications for your relationship with God. Now, you might be able um, to use something according, not, not according to its design, right? But you can't do it forever. I, my parents are here, and I don't know the first time they brought me to McDonald's, but they did something to me, you know? They, they, they introduced the idea that things that aren't food are food. Because McDonald's is not food. <laughs> but it's so delicious, and I want it so much. <laughs> it smells so good, and it smells like food, but it really isn't food, right? You could eat McDonald's cheeseburgers forever. And McDonald's cheeseburgers and McDonald's fries, they taste so good. McDonald's, right? It's a little advertisement for them. Don't go to McDonald's after this. Um, and sometimes I really want to only eat McDonald's cheeseburgers and fries. By sometimes, I mean most of the time. Um, but I couldn't do that for very long. I couldn't do that for very long. Not because God says so and God's a jerk, but because my body would tell me, you can't do that usually about 45 minutes after I eat McDonald's <laughs> in ways that I won't get into. Um, or after about 15 years of eating only McDonald's, your body will tell you, no, you can't do that because you probably are going to have a heart attack. <laughs> right? There's just some internal logic to the person. When we misuse our bodies, eventually it catches up with us. That misuse will catch up with us. Such is the logic around sexuality when it comes to the Bible. The biblical authors understand this the same way, that though the body can be used for sexual immorality, it was not designed to be used for sexual immorality. And to use the body for sexual immorality is to disrupt and uh, get in the way of its, its designed purpose and its proper functioning. We are designed to uh, ultimately live a life in the presence of God that is the definition, the biblical definition, uh, is, that is the definition of a good life. Life in the presence of God, life with God. We are designed to, in every aspect of our lives, be in fellowship with him and be transformed by him and enjoy him and have our deepest needs and purposes satisfied as we follow after him. We are called to be transformed by his presence into his character and likeness. That is the goal of your relationship with God and your body, which is you, as we talked about in the second week of this series, you and your body are not separable, is a part of that. You engage in that purpose with your body. There is no part of our life that God can't use for his glory and a part of this purpose and calling that we have. There's no part of your life that, if given to him and, and set towards his glory, cannot be sanctified and used for the advancement of this purpose of knowing him, being transformed into his likeness, and enjoying him. Your body, inclusive of your sex life, is a part of God's design for, for you. It's, it, it is included in that. But I think we should ask this question, um, and... It's a question worth asking. It's a very simple one. What is up with that God? What is up with that God? Um, like, 
If my body is for that, if my body is for the Lord, and that's really my highest purpose, then why is it that I and so many people have these desires that are contrary to that? Why is it that we experience this disordered desire? Why is it that people are so prone and inclined to sexual immorality? Why is pornography and lust like such a draw? Why is, uh, you know, sex outside of marriage such a draw? That just doesn't seem fair, God. What is up with that? Why does it work that way? And and I don't want to put that question out there like as a joke, Because it's a serious question. It's a serious question, especially if you find yourself on the outside of the Christian sexual ethic. Wanting to be, maybe, on the inside, or maybe not. But if you find yourself on the outside, and you're experiencing these desires, and you feel this sense of either dissatisfaction in the way you're, you're approaching your sexuality, or, even worse, a condemnation that you feel the things that you feel and that have the desires that you have and you feel like it's separating you from God. Why has God designed life to be that way? And why is sexuality such a huge issue for so many people, not just in our time, but in all time? How is that fair? How is it that we feel condemned by things that feel, essentially feel natural to us? Does that seem right? Or at the very least, how is it Uh, that you feel as if there is no changing these desires, that we feel like a desire to do the right thing, but we are stuck in these habits of sin, these patterns of sin. How is it that the person who would like to honor God is still addicted to pornography? How is it that the person who has this sense that their sex life is not truly satisfying them, how is it that they also don't feel that to, to not have a sex life, to be entirely celibate, would also not be satisfying to them. You know, like, because ultimately, the Christian sexual ethic puts us in some binds, and we feel those binds very seriously. And I just want to say, and I think it's worth stopping and just saying, yeah, it's hard. It is difficult to go through life to feel these conflicting desires, a desire to know God, which I think is truly internal and right, and I think every person has that sense, but also this desire for sex. Why is it that way? It seems hard. It seems unfair. And um, particularly if you have desires um, that feel very fixed um, and you just feel like, no, there's, there's no way this could ever be sanctified. There's no way that this could ever be a part of uh, the plan because the Bible says it isn't. That's, that's a hard thing. So I just want to say that with empathy, right? Like, like, let's empathize with this. Jesus is good with empathy. He's good with compassion. He experienced every temptation that we experienced. He experienced it all, and yet he was without sin. But he's compassionate. So what's up with that? I, I think I could try to answer some of those questions, of like, like how does this work, and, and why is God designed things this way? And I would, I would really point to the reality of sin if I were really going to talk about that. I, I, because this is really the issue of sin. Sin is, isn't just that I have bad natural feelings. It's that my literal desires have been contorted and twisted by the effects of sin in my life. And I am subsequently participating in a rebellion against God in my sin. So actually, the problem isn't that I have been just created with two natural desires. It's that I have been created with a desire for good, to honor God in my body, but sin is having its work in me to desire a wrong thing. 
a selfish thing, a thing where I am being put first. So, but I'm not going to get into a whole thing on sin this morning. I really don't think that's necessary. Instead, I, I do want to point out this. I just want to say that these things, yes, to desire to honor God with our bodies can be difficult, and to experience the, the draw of sin and sexual immorality in, in our bodies on a daily, daily, weekly, whatever, on uh, a, a pretty often basis is difficult. But let's point to the good. The good, and that's what I really think we need to focus on today, the good is that God has not left us alone to just wander in the middle of that. God has not left us um, to just sort it out on our own. That's what we sort of feel like. We, we very much feel, I think, alone in our struggles to honor God with our bodies when, when it's not going well. But God has not left us alone. He's given us a few witnesses to himself. He's, he's led us in some, some significant ways. The first way is that he's spoken to us. He's spoken to us. This is God speaking to you. In prayer, we can hear from God. The Bible tells us that Jesus' coming on earth is the way that he's speaking to people now. God is not a God who stands apart and judges. He's a God who has come down, taken on flesh, experiences the difficulties that we experience, understands who we are, understands and has compassion on the challenges, and yet he has spoken to us. He's brought knowledge into what feels like chaos. And from a place of knowledge, we can start to make sense of the chaos. We can start to be led out of the chaos, the chaos of desire, the chaos of sexual immorality that is destroying our relationship with God. He's speaking to us, and he's speaking to us from mercy. He's speaking us so that we can start to understand what it would look like to turn from sin and to lay hold of his life that he's created us for. Second, he has forgiven us. Jesus died on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin. The truth is that sexual immorality and its indulgence is guilt-inducing, as it should be, because it is ultimately, especially divorced of the Christian sexual ethic, it is about selfishness. It's about getting what I want from someone else, no matter the cost to them. It's transgression, and it does damage. And that alone, to know that we've done something against God could keep us away from him. I mean, come on, like if we know that we've sinned against God, how, how quick are we to just like hide in shame and just ignore him? But what God has done is he has died on the cross so that we would know that he cares enough about us to take away our sin, to take away the shame, to take away the stuff, this internal condemnation that is separating us from him. He has preemptively died so that we could know that there is a way to glorify him. There is a way to live this life in the body where we feel all these contradictory and, and condemnation and shame in our lives, and he's, he's dying so that we will see that we can come to him. He's answering us, recognizing our need and meeting us in that moment. And third, he's just given us pathways, I'd like to say, pathways so that we can be us, but still honor him. I think that's interesting. A lot of times, I, I, I think that we think the, um, that religions provide for us ways to cease to be ourselves and to become different sorts of people. And usually the way we think that that happens is that we'll just become stronger people, better people. But the, the Christian story, the story that's marked by grace, not performance, is different. 
It's that Jesus comes and meets us right where we are in the middle of our sin. He doesn't say, oh, you're over here and I'm over here and there's this thing between us. You just got to climb over the wall and do better. What he does is he cuts a pathway between where he is and where we are, between where we should be and where we experience ourselves to be separate from him. He makes a pathway so that we can make our way towards him and deal with the sin and the difficulty and the temptation that we experience on a daily basis. We talked about um, one of those pathways last week. I mean, a way that God meets us as we are, and that's the way of singleness. And Paul talks about singleness. He, he, he says it's such, such a value to people. It's good for a person to be uh, unmarried and to just like be able to worship God and to not have to be engaged in, in, their, in a sexual life. And he talks about that in 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 9. He says, I say to the unmarried and the widows, it's good for them to remain as I am. He was either single his whole life or he was a widow. And there's some debate about that. Um, but if they don't have self-control, uh, they should marry, since it is better for a man to marry than to burn with desire. So Paul identifies one of these pathways that we can live this kind of renewed life in the flesh as people that we are, and one of them is to be single. That's that if we can handle the temptation, we can handle sexual desire and not, not go uh, off into sexual immorality, then we should go ahead and be single and devote our lives to seeking the Lord. That's a the good recommended thing. We don't, we don't treat that as a really good way thing in our culture. And that needs to change, and well, I talked about that last week, so I don't want to get into it too much. But another pathway, another way in which God uh, meets us as the people that we are, with the challenges that we have, is by giving us the gift of marriage. So if you're a person who, man, like, you just have sexual desire and you don't, you don't have the, the self-control in and of yourself, Jesus says, hey, great, I've got, I've got a pathway for you. It's not just jump over the hurdle and be better than you are. It's, look, I'm going to put you into this state, this, 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 this way of living, what, what the Bible calls marriage, so that you can still be you and you can still live a life outside of sexual morality and you can still deal with, with, the, with the heart stuff and yet still come to me. And I think there's a temptation for us to think, like, oh, okay, so Paul is saying singleness is like the A squad and marriage is like the B squad, right? Because we love to think in hierarchies. Everything's about hierarchies in, in really in a, in a Western mindset. But I really don't think that's what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying uh, is that, you know, like for some people, singleness is the right thing and, and that should be celebrated and embraced. And for some people, marriage is the right thing. Paul understands that God's compassionate on us. He understands our weaknesses. God understands our weaknesses and he makes a way, he makes pathways for us to live full lives as people who are experiencing varying levels of strength, self-control or not. God meets us where we are. The pathways that we walk towards God are not like an uphill march or a slog through snow and ice. God meets each of us where we are. So if you don't have this kind of crazy, like intimate relationship with God where you're totally able to be entirely self-controlled, where you don't have this, this like driving passion for God that is like so clear and vivid that like you just want to focus your whole life on that and not express yourself sexually, God says that's okay. That's okay. Like 
Your hope in life is not that you be more spiritual than you are. It's that God would meet you right where you are and develop you and transform you into a person who can love him better. I just love this about God. I love this about God that he meets us right where we are. And not only is it okay that you just not be that sort of person who who has all the self-control in the world, it would be great if you did, but it's not okay. But God has a way for you to both both enable you to have a fulfilling sex life and to grow as a person, to grow into sanctification. And that way is marriage. That pathway is marriage. Marriage is not less than singleness. It is just another way in which we can, as people, come in and grow into a fullness and a a dignity of living life in the presence of God. It's a good thing. Marriage is a good thing that needs to be understood. Marriage is good. You can express yourself sexually in the context of marriage and follow the Lord and be a whole person. We've been, really, really we've been going through this series and every, every week we've been talking about the um, Christian sexual ethic and I've, I've got it up here. Um, and it's really about marriage. Really, the Christian sexual ethic is defining where marriage is. And that is that sexual intimacy is a gift from God to be expressed only in the context of marriage. This is what Christians have historically believed um, all throughout history for 2,000 years. That marriage is a gift of God to be expressed only in the context of marriage. And marriage is defined as a lifelong, covenanted, exclusive partnership between one man and one woman for the sake of uniting and procreating. Um, I, I take this to be kind of a summary of, of the biblical understanding of sex, sexuality, and, and where it is permitted and is permitted in this context of marriage. Um, and so what I want to do is just explore this definition of marriage uh, throughout the rest of the day and, and understand the ways in which man, marriage is such a gift to us as people who are experiencing uh, desire. It is a gift to us because it will create in us and and transform our desires and sanctify us. It is a sanctifying institution. Um, So just just looking quickly at the distinctives of marriage, one that sticks out in our culture in particular is this one man, one woman part. Because as as you can see, it precludes the possibility of same-sex marriage. And I really do think that's what the Bible teaches we're not going to dig into that this morning because next week, the whole week, we're going to talk about homosexuality, okay? So I'm going to ask you to just containerize that little definition, and we'll put that off next week. It really needs a lot of attention. Next week, we will ask the question, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Does it really say what we think it is? Because there's lots of arguments going on this day, these, this day and age um, about what it does say. And then what is it that people who are attracted to people of the same sex, what can they do about it? Okay? Like, so that's what we will talk about next week, just to, to get you aware. Aware. We'll say Aware. Um, but not going to spend any more time on that today. But I do think that it's worth noting that marriage is a union of two differently sexed people, people who are of opposite sex. And I think that's important because a significant part of why marriage is between one man and one woman is because marriage is categorically the uniting of difference. Do you understand that? I don't know about you. Like, they say opposites attract. 
There's, there seems, seems, to be, seems to be some logic in that. My wife is, is awesome. She's amazing. We are so different on so many levels, right? And I think that there's actually something inherently important about that in marriage. Two people come together in marriage. They are different types of people, literally different sexes. They deal with different things. And what God does in marriage is he unites difference. And that is part of what marriage is. The uniting of people through the forming and then strengthening of bonds of love over a lifetime is precisely what marriage is for. It's to take two people who have different motives for being in a marriage, who have different ways of thinking about life and the world, who have different ways of thinking about what is love, and then taking those two different people and their different experiences and uniting them, making them one, sanctifying both of them over the course of a lifetime of learning to love one another. See, marriage is a pathway of grace, one that is not, and this is, I think, really the important point, it's not just an accommodation of sexual desire. Like, that's kind of how we think of marriage. It's like, oh, well, God would prefer that we be single, but eh, since we're not really strong enough, like, he's just going to let us go ahead and have sex because, you know, people want to have sex and you've got to make babies somehow, so, you know, you might as well. Um, it is not simply, marriage is not simply an accommodation of desire, but what it does is it takes desire for sexual intimacy in men and women which is a good and blessed thing, and then it transforms it, sanctifies it, making it into something that truly glorifies God. Sex, actually, in the context of marriage, builds love. That's the, the argument I'm going to make, and, and we're going to see that over time. So how does that work? Um, there's an analogy that I'm very proud of. You should know. I'm unduly proud of this analogy. Um, and I think it kind of illustrates what's, what's going on in marriage. And I always say this. It says, marriage is like greenhouse. There it is. There's my little greenhouse that I stole from the internet. Um, the very structure of it actually creates an environment where this growth and uniting can happen. And it can happen in all seasons. It can happen when things are great and when things are difficult. It can <laughs> happen when things are hot and when they're cold. A little double entendre. Um, <laughs> look at Things that grow in a greenhouse are protected from the extreme heat and from the extreme cold. And what marriage does is it protects and encloses whatever is planted there. That is, these two different sorts of people who are called to grow in to a love of God and to a love of each other. Marriage, the institution, and its defining characteristics, which we will talk about further here, it is there to protect that thing so that that uniting can happen and that the transformative work of marriage can happen. So let's think about this greenhouse analogy and how marriage works. Two qualities of Christian marriage that are pretty distinct but are essentially important are, are that it's lifelong and that it's exclusive. Again, this is from, from my definition, and I think it's very clearly what's commended in Scripture in terms of the sexual ethic and what marriage looks like. It is lifelong and it is exclusive. So when a person gets married as a Christian, what they are doing is they are making a totally crazy commitment to a person 
to their spouse to exclusively love, exclusively uh, direct their sexual desire towards and their love towards their spouse for the entirety of their life, which is maybe a long time. You don't know. That's, that's part of the, the commitment and what makes it crazy, that it's just forever is a, is, is a long time. Till I die, till death do us part is a very long time, potentially. And for many people, particularly in our culture and in our day, they simply believe that a, a lifelong commitment is just too much. And the rationale for that is usually something like this. How can we know if in 10 years or in 20 years we'll still be in love? So how can we commit to each other for life? Because maybe we're going to get there over time and find, well, we don't actually love this person anymore. I heard, you know, pastors have a bad tendency to bag on Oprah. And Oprah's not the worst person in the world, but I heard Oprah say something that like was like talking to one of her guests and her, her guest said, oh, well, you know, I, I'm just getting divorced because we both decided that we just didn't love each other anymore. And Oprah was just like, oh, that is such a good choice. That's such a great example for people. You know, because if you just stop loving each other, why be married anymore? Why care about each other anymore? There is a skepticism in culture about the longevity of marriage, that it would be lifelong. Sometimes also there's, there's skepticism about the exclusivity of marriage because you can ask the question and people do. Well, how can I know that this person will sexually satisfy me over the course of my lifetime? Maybe at some point I'm going to want someone else. And don't I have the right to that? And I would say, fascinatingly, the characteristics of marriage, that is, its exclusivity and the lifelong commitment, are precisely the conditions which will make it, which make it so, so that the rationale of marriage actually works. You get this? It's like these two things, these two attitudes and the approach towards, towards marriage and commitment to each other actually create the conditions where these questions aren't relevant. And if these things don't, aren't happening in marriage, these questions become really relevant. It's kind of an alchemy going on here. Think of, it, think of the greenhouse again. Look, the thing about greenhouses is greenhouses with broken windows are good for what? Nothing at all. <laughs> a greenhouse with a broken window will not do what it is designed to do. It doesn't matter if it has a roof. It doesn't matter if it has one of the sides intact. If one of those window panes is broken, there's nothing there, a greenhouse will not function. It cannot protect what's growing in those things. So too, these commitments, the lifelong nature of marriage and the exclusivity of it, actually create the environment within the greenhouse so that the transforming and the growing of love can actually work its way out so that we're not asking these questions when we're 10, 20 years down the road in marriage. If I am, uh, when I sign up, I'm just saying, and I'm understanding and entering into marriage on the basis of a lifelong and exclusive commitment, then actually I am creating an environment where my desires for my spouse can change and mature over time, not diminish over time. Yet, if I enter into marriage without these expectations, I am creating the conditions in which when things get difficult, I will bail. 
And when, when temptation comes, I will go elsewhere. It's, it's a, the very attitudes of marriage and the approach to marriage that makes it work, that it be lifelong and exclusive. It will not work unless these things are in place. Marriage is not just a convenient contract. Marriage is a commitment. And I want to just say something, and I, I probably should have said it right when I, when I introduced the idea of lifelong commitment. Um, I know that there are people in this room who have been divorced. and this is not, I'm not saying any of this to condemn you, by the way. But I'll tell you, um, if you want to know how important exclusivity and lifelong commitment is to marriage, just ask anyone who's been divorced. Because usually when marriages fail, and I'm not talking about who's at fault, and there's a lot of things that go on, there's no shame involved in this, but usually um, the shakiness of marriage uh, comes in, and marriages become fragile when, when these two things aren't really honored and cared for. And it's sort of a, like a, it's almost like circular argument, right? It's circular logic. But I, I think it's, 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 it's so true that these two things will, will make for a lasting marriage or they will make for a marriage that ends up breaking. And um, if you've been divorced, again, like the Christian sexual ethic is not here to shame us. It's not here for that. If you feel like, like bad, like, like man, I was divorced, um, know that God has, has pathways for you in the middle of all this. Divorce is a tragedy. You know that because you went through one maybe. It's, it's, it's painful. It, it hurts. But God can still renew and restore your life. I, I would say that. I think that's really important to, to understand. And if you are in a marriage right now or a second marriage, then understand that this lifelong exclusive commitment is so important for the continuance of that marriage. It really is essential. The other uh, element of marriage, right, that it is exclusive and lifelong, a lifelong commitment is that it is covenanted. And I think this is uh, probably really the most important thing, that marriage be covenantal, which is to say that it is a serious vow taken in the presence of God. It is a holy commitment that you make to join yourself exclusively and for the entirety of your life to another person and it has the effect that now you can think of yourself not only as yourself, but you can think of yourself as one with your spouse. That is the degree to which marriage is serious. It literally transforms you as a person. You, are, you and your spouse, if you're, if you're married, are no longer just two individual persons trying to find their individual interests. You are one person. That means that marriage is not about managing the competing interests of two parties. If you think about your marriage like that, you're not thinking of your marriage as a covenant. Thinking of your marriage as a covenant is about finding the best thing for the two of you who are actually one person. Finding the single good for both of you because you are not your own. Put it another way, marriage, covenantal marriage is about love Real love, which is love that considers the good of the other over the interest of the self. That's what real love is. That's what Christian love is, the love that lays its life down for the sake of others. That's what Jesus shows us what love is like. If you have a covenantal commitment, a holy commitment to another person to no longer see as a person in whom you are in competition, but a person whom you are there to serve and love, 
then you will create the conditions, these greenhouse conditions, where your marriage can thrive and become what is truly supposed to be. And I just got to say, like, again, like that sort of attitude is going to combat these other questions of, well, what about over 20 or 30 years, like when I don't like feel like I love this person anymore? If I have this covenantal commitment where I don't even see a separation uh, between me and my spouse, but instead I just look for the good of my spouse above all things, well, then I am going to have a safe and secure marriage. That is what we are called to. Hey, let's look at Ephesians 5. If you know Ephesians 5... You know this is a controversial um, passage on marriage. Controversial because it sort of kicks against some of our uh, cultural values here. So I'm going to ask you to hang in there, depending on how, how, how you feel about this passage, okay? So I'm going to read you Ephesians 5, and this is, a, this is the CSB translation. It says, you already see it, right? You already see it, and you're like, mm. Wives, submit to your husbands, as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the... <laughs> I'm making so many people so mad right now. Uh, don't worry, don't worry. This is, I'm, not, I'm not trying to play a trick on you. Uh, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with water, washing of water by the word. Now, look it. This is, um, I, w- I would say this is a passage of scripture that is um, divisive. Because there's really two, at least two ways to read this. Oftentimes, this passage is thought of and, and, and filtered through kind of our cultural values of hierarchy and power. And a lot of Christians, especially culturally conservative Christians, will read this passage and say, well, this passage is it's about who's in charge in a marriage, <laughs> right? Because it says, wives, submit to your husband. So it's, it's really just the wife has to do that. And, and, and the husband only has to love their wife, not submit to them. Um, but I would say that's not what this passage says. I don't think that's what this is saying about. This is not about who's in charge in a marriage. This is not a passage that is about that. And I know this passage is not about that because Paul tells me what this passage is about in verse 33. He says this, to sum up which is when somebody wants to sum up, they say, to sum up. So he's summing up. He's telling us, what, what did I just tell you? Here's what I just told you. Not the boss, the boss of the marriage is the, uh, uh, is the husband and the, the not the boss is the wife. To sum up, each one of you love his wife as himself and the wife is to respect her husband. This is not a power passage. This is a covenantal commitment passage. This is a passage that is indicating how important it is for spouses to love and respect and submit to each other, to value the interests of the other over their own interests. Now, you might say, but Pastor Trey, he never told men to submit to their wives. He told the men to love their wives and told the wives to submit. See, it's right there in verse 22. And I would say, you're right. In verse 22, he does say that. Uh, And he doesn't say in verse 22 that husbands should submit to their wives. He actually says that in verse 21. Okay? So verse 21 says this. And this is um, is N.T. Wright's translation. Um, he He says in verse 21, he says, Be subject one to another out of reverence for the Messiah. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. It's really funny. Um, 
Actually, let's, let, me, let me pull this up. Okay, so if I were to pull up Ephesians, which I will do, it's, it's funny the way the text works. Um, because if you read your Bible, what you'll find is Ephesians uh, 5.21 is, is right up here. Uh, and then, then there's this heading. In, in this uh, version, it says, Marriage like Christ and the church. But the thing about it is when Paul wrote these letters, he didn't write these headings. These headings are not a part of the scripture. They are editorial comments made by the board is translating. And there's some logic to this being broken up. So, so, so verse 21, be subject to one another out of reverence for the Messiah. And verse 22, in almost every text of scripture, in every, every biblical translation, is separated by both a paragraph and a heading, a pericope talking about wives and marriage. And so that has led us to believe, oh, well, this verse 21 idea of being subject to one another isn't really that important because verse 22 emphasizes what's really important, and that's that wives should be subject to their husbands. But you know what was crazy? If I actually go back into the Greek language and I look at verse 22, which we have translated as wives, be subject to or submit to your own husbands as the Lord, do you know what it doesn't say in, in the Greek language? It doesn't say submit. The word for submit is not even in verse 20, 22. It's not there at all. It actually says, wives to your own husbands. Now, you might say, well, why do we have submit here? It's because it's an implied verb, submit, and it's implied from the previous verse, verse 21, where it does say submit. So the only time that submission is mentioned here is actually in verse 21, where it says, be subject one another, submit one another out of reverence for the Messiah. The emphasis of the submission is on one another. And then the implication in verse 22 is wives should submit. Because if one another's, men and women, are mutually submissive to each other, then of course wives will also be submissive. But we take this to read it. Oh, he's really getting to the real point, which is that wives should submit. Because we want to read things through a lens of power. This is not a power passage. This is not a power passage. This is a call that we should serve and submit to one another. Submission in marriage, I mean, it's, it's, it is important because no one should dominate in a marriage. A husband or a wife should not be domineering or cruel. Jesus makes it so clear that the use of power is not to be like that. It's not to be about lording over one another. But marriage is to be an institution where we are mutually serving one another. And yes, I think we could go back to even, even to this passage as well as to other passages in the Scripture and say, certainly there is difference Husbands and wives are different. They play, they play different roles, um, and, and that's okay, but it's not to the, this end of who gets to not make dinner, right? Which is sometimes the way we, we read these passages. It's so kind of crazy to me the way Christians sometimes take these things and contort them and make them all about power when really the point that Paul is making is that you just need to love each other. You, you know, you're going to arrange your family the way you want to arrange things, my wife doesn't work full-time, and so, yeah, she stays home with our kids most of the time, and she does a lot of the housework, because I'm here most of the time. I get to do the dishes. It's the only thing she lets me in the kitchen for. But that's her. Like, she doesn't want me there, because I make a mess of things, and I'm just, I'm just the worst. Um, I can get better. I swear I can get better. 
both are called to mutual submission and love. The covenantal commitment that we have is to look out for the interests of one and another. That is what marriage does. And if we don't do this, if we don't understand this covenantal love that we're called to, then marriage just doesn't work. It won't function. It's like a greenhouse with broken windows. It will become an environment where unity and love cannot grow and where maturity in marriage cannot happen. It'll be like this greenhouse with broken windows where we don't have mutual love, respect, and even submission. We, marriage can't play the role it's supposed to do. It cannot function in the way it's supposed to. Marriage is for this. It is God's design to meet people where they are and transform them into people who love well, who are transformed into people who love God and love others well. And as we wrap up here, I want us to think about this because really I've talked about kind of the dynamics relationally in marriage, right? But I haven't talked about sex in marriage. And so now we get to have that, that wonderful talk. We're going to have a sex talk. Um, sorry. How does, what is the role of sex in marriage? Because in the end we are talking about sex and sexual desire. That's the point of this, this um, this whole series. Fascinatingly, this greenhouse, this marriage, a lifelong exclusive and covenantal commitment to each other, it has this amazing effect. Besides making us people who love each other well, is that it can take our natural Desire for sex, which God says, okay, I get that about you. This is a part of who you are, so I'm going to let you express that in the context of marriage. It can take that desire for sex and not, not, not take it away, but it can transform it and refine it over time. A marriage that is lifelong, exclusive, and covenantal, will, sex will be a part of that marriage, but it will start to be something else over time. Sex is a part of marriage. It's important. It's important. It's one of these things that, and I just, just pastorally need to tell you, if you're married and if you are medically able to have sex as a couple, you should have sex as a couple. It's a good thing. This just, need, just, just needs to be said. I know that because Paul tells me that in 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5, he says this, because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. And each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. Is that a power passage? Oh, no, wait, no, let's keep reading. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another. Paul makes it clear that over time, sex continues to be an important part of marriage. It's something that is going to be unitive. It unites people, and it's good. Paul thinks it's good for people to be single if they can be, but he's still 100% for sex, regular sex, in the context of marriage. And that's great news. Right? <laughs> um, but even better news is this. It's the fact that uh, in the context of marriage, God can take your sex life, your sex drive, something that um, maybe is not entirely necessary, but is a, a very natural part of us, and turn it into something that will drive us to love God even more. So let's, let's think about it in marriage, in the context of marriage for a second. Um, 
Consider, let's consider for a second what people are looking for in their sex life when they're first married. So if you're married, you can probably think through this. Um, I would argue that in every single marriage, sex begins as something uh, that we do from self-interest. That's, that's just how, that's how it starts. <laughs> Phase one of, of marital sex is, is, is you, you get married, and ideally, you know, you haven't been having sex before marriage, but, you know, this, we're talking about the ideal here. Um, and, 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 and you engage in sex with, with your spouse from self-interest. Probably, um, it, it, I'm going to make some generalizations that are not always true. I think it's important to say that different people experience sexual desire in different ways. But generally, men engage in sex from um, a desire for pleasure a desire for stress relief, a desire for essentially selfish things. Selfish, but not, not like, oh, you're so selfish sort of thing, but just, just because in the beginning, we are not really familiar with our spouse, right? Uh, and, and, but we have a, a desire for our spouse, and usually it is a, it is a fairly self-centered desire. That's for men. Uh, and then oftentimes for women, though not always, I really, I really was hesitant to even say this part, but I think it's important that oftentimes women have a different motivation in sex than, than men, but not always. Uh, sometimes women are, are, are interested in sex for the sake of pleasure, but also uh, oftentimes women are very aware of their desire for sex so that they can have an intimate connection with their spouse. Get how different people come into uh, sex in the beginning with different motives, but essentially they are self-interested in this, these early stages of marriage. They are looking, each spouse is looking for something from their partner in marriage, and it's, it's really about um, self-interest, and that's okay, it's normal, because that's how God created us to be. We are to be people with sexual desires, and we're to express ourselves in the context of marriage. Um, but the beautiful thing that happens over time in marriage is that those desires and our self-interest transforms. And it transforms uh, actually usually through a, a rocky period that I'm just calling uh, the negotiation phase. Okay? And just as, as somebody who's done a lot of marriage counseling, this is where marriage gets made, made or broken, in the negotiation phase. And what happens in the negotiation phase is, you know, people have come into marriage with different expectations of, of what sex is supposed to be, how, how satisfying it is, what it's supposed to be for, what they, what, what, what they want from it. And they find that their spouse and them have different motivations. And sometimes their motivations don't align, and sometimes their desires don't, don't connect all the time. And so then sex starts to be something that we negotiate over. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not saying this is a bad stage. This is a normal stage probably in about the three to six-year range of marriage. Once you've been married for a while and you've done all the enjoying honeymoon phase of marriage, we get into this negotiation phase where, and again, to generalize a little bit, and I apologize, where usually uh, the man says, well, I'd like to have more sex. And the wife says, well, I'm tired. And I would just actually like to be more, you to be more emotionally available to me instead of just interested you know, in your self-satisfaction in, in the context of our marriage, right? What we experience in this negotiation phase is that, is that marriage is not what we expected it to be. Sex is not actually what we expected it to be. And, and, and men and women, different people, in the context of, of, of their sexual relationship over time, are not as satisfied as they thought they might be because we've made an idol of sex. 
Men make an idol of sex. They think it's supposed to be, be pleasurable, make them feel powerful, make them feel secure. Women make an idol of sex in the same way. It's supposed to be the place where I get all the emotional connection. I get the attention of my spouse. And then you find over time that it doesn't really work out super perfectly. And so there's this negotiation phase where we are doing this thing, where we are, instead of being two people who are serving the interests one of the other, we're trying to work out our own interests. And this isn't to condemn anybody here. But if you are, you know, young in your marriage, I mean, honestly, I think people can spend the first 10 to 15 years of their marriages dealing with this stuff then the invitation is for you to move out of this negotiation phase and to understand what God really has for you in marriage and what role sex is to play in a healthy marriage. And that's that we should be getting to phase three, which is um, other serving, that our sexual desires and our love for our spouse, it can be other serving. Sex can be either a point of conflict where two parties are trying to get what they want and be, I don't mean to say selfish, like in a condemning kind of way, but where we're not particularly interested in the other person's experience of sex and if it's satisfying to them. But instead it can become in the context of a lifelong exclusive covenantal commitment where we are learning to love and value the other spouse. It can be, sex can actually become something that serves the goal of uniting and creating a love bond where we're becoming others serving even in our sex lives. And people who have done the difficult work of having the conversations around the negotiating phase of sex and marriage, who are starting to understand what their spouse is looking for in sex, in marriage, who are, and it's awkward, oh, super awkward, super awkward, who are doing, the people who are doing the awkward work of working through this negotiation phase and starting to understand their spouse's needs and putting their spouse's needs even above their own, not to the point where they're just like, um, where they're feeling used, but to the point where they're just saying, okay, I, I understand my spouse, what my spouse hopes for in sex, and I think it's valuable and okay. And I love this person. And so I can, through our sex life, serve them, and then the same thing happens on the other side. So you have these two different people who are expecting different things from their sex life. Over the course of years, are starting to understand that Sex can be a place of mutual love and of other-serving commitment. It can be a really beautiful thing, not just a selfish thing, but a thing that unites a couple over time. And if you know people who have been married for a long time and who are super healthy in their sex life, I guarantee you they've moved out of phase two and into phase three. Healthy marriages that people are able to do this and have these conversations. And so I wanted to point that out because um, no matter where you are in marriage, if it's early on or you're into this negotiation phase, some of this, this choppy water of figuring out each other, or you've moved on into this phase three, and I, I don't think it's a, a strict continuum. I don't think you leap over the wall into the other phase at some point, right? But you're moving towards this point where even your sexual relationship, which at one point felt like this powerful force that you couldn't contain, it's actually becoming directed towards love over time 
So if you're in that, wherever you are at in this continuum, look towards what God is doing in your marriage, and it is good. God can take our, our, our relationship, our marriage, and make it a steady place where love can grow, this other-serving kind of love that transforms what once was a difficult thing to bear, that is sexual desire, and turns it into something that just fuels the flame of love and love in the character that God tells us is good, like in 1 Corinthians 13, 4. This is the love that we're going for, even in our sex life. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not irritable. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all, all things, and hopes all things, endures all things. If you are married, your whole life together is going towards developing this kind of love, including your sex life. Sex isn't the problem. Sex isn't the issue of conflict. Getting over my selfishness and considering the needs of my spouse, that's where the work needs to be done. Developing love, love that is covenantal, that has the interests of the other in mind, that's where the work needs to be done. And so that's my invitation to you guys. Um, it's amazing what God does. The worship team can come up here. It's amazing what God does when we actually try to seek out his intended purpose for our lives. There are good things that God can do uh, with your sex life, even if you're married. Even if it's something that you've struggled with, God can redeem and restore it. He can take this very thing which felt like, oh, it was just like a source of a lot of temptation and difficulty, and he can turn it into a comfort, a comfort that leads us to love one another better. And so that's my, uh, that's my call for us, that we would see marriage that way, that it is a sanctifying and purifying and beautiful sort of thing. Uh, so let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. I thank you for... Um, the calling that you have, Lord, Lord, in the hope that we have in marriage, Lord, to become people of love, people who've been transformed by what you say is good and right. God, we can practice these things. Teach us to practice these things. Lord, teach us to love our spouses if we're married well. Teach us to, to honor marriage and to value it, value um, the commitments that we have to put uh, our spouse first in our marriage. Lord, would you, would you bless the marriages in this place?